Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Welcome to the Bike Radar Meets podcast series. This is where we, as you might imagine, meet interesting and influential people from the bicycle industry. Okay, so we're with uh, Ian Weatherall who is the one of the founders and uh, the current managing director of Hope Technology. Is that about right? Yeah, managing director and co-owner, yeah. Okay. Um, we wanted to talk about a lot of things to do with Hope. Um, it's one of the most influential mountain bikes, certainly companies um, in the UK, British-based manufacturing, uh, and has also had um, a bit of history with road bikes uh, and components, and obviously is doing something very interesting with the GB Track Squad. Um, so we, we wanted to come in, have a chat with him about Hope, the history of it, um, where things are and where things are going. So could you sort of very quickly start with a brief overview of how Hope Technology came about? Well, really started with myself and Simon, we're tool makers at Rolls-Royce, well, drawing office and tool making at Rolls-Royce. And the idea was we'd set up an engineering business and we were both trials riders, motorcycle trials riders. Mm-hmm. And the idea was if we made enough money by Thursday, we'd practice on Friday, Saturday, and enter the event on Sunday. Okay. And then if we actually made enough money for the equipment for our Rolls-Royce wage by Wednesday, we'd practice Thursday and Friday and Saturday and compete on Sunday. But we set up in business 32 years ago, and what happened was we ended up working seven days a week for about 15 years. But that's, that's the way it goes when you set up in business on your own. And that's what it is. So we did tool making originally, and some of the first jobs we did were making parts for the uh, Eurofighter for British Aerospace. We did some parts for that for inspection on that, and all sorts of things for Rolls-Royce and companies that did work for Rolls-Royce. So that's what it's up. But we still carried on with our trials riding, and we actually trained on mountain bikes, and they were old British Eagles, but if all sorts of different things. And the brakes were diabolical. And so what we did, we took the disc brakes from our motorcycle trials bikes and miniaturized them and put them on our mountain bikes without thinking they would actually be commercially any good or anything like that. And then we thought, this seems like a good idea. So we started to make some, we made about 10 or 12 of them. And then we took them over to Interbike in America and Every thought we were an enormous English company, but we only had 12 brakes made, and there were on 12 stands at Interbike. It was the same year Mountain Cycle brought their hydraulic brake out, and we had our mechanical brake over there. So that was the start of it, really. But that got us into making hubs, because we couldn't mount the actual brakes to any hubs. So we started producing hubs, and hubs took over from brakes. We produced more hubs. But back then, we used to make hubs for 
all the road bikes, the Kellogg's Tour, all Ambrosia team, all sorts of people are you know, years and years ago used to ride on whole pubs. And when they first made the track at Manchester, we made track ups for them. And so it was many years ago, wasn't it? And then obviously the brakes, the hubs became more compatible, the forks got mounts on, so it all moved on. Then more people got involved in making disc brakes and things. And uh, we grew gradually. We, we stopped doing the aerospace parts, the automotive parts, and just went 100% bicycles, mountain bikes, really. Okay, so my, my assertion then that you started with mountain biking is kind of true, but kind of not because you did all the road hubs, the track hubs, and that's sort of what got you into, into building them then. Yeah, that's it, yeah. It was, and it was just purely because we had to put the disc brake on, and that's what we wanted to do for our mountain biking, but we ended up making road hubs, peculiar, and track hubs. But that, if you remember when the, the track first opened at Manchester, there's all the BMXers and the mountain bikers and downers all used to train the track. And then that became very elitist and became a track-specific thing, where it used to be open sort of to everybody. And now you, you know, it's like a year's waiting list to get on there. So mm. it's, it's all changed as that. Yeah. But uh, like I say, you just, we gradually started to do more and more brakes and hubs. And now we're doing sort of 50,000, 60,000 brakes, 100,000 hubs a year. And that's what we do. We just love making our own stuff that's what it's about it's actually manufacturing everything in house so we go from raw material to finished part and actual sales and marketing everything's in house but that's a tool maker's mentality you okay. think you think you can do everything and that's what we learned at rolls royce and it's not necessarily the best thing to do commercially mm-hmm. you know many people advise us along the way many times to subcontract it out or send it out to china get it made or you make a lot more money but sometimes it's not all about the money. It's about enjoying what you're doing and the reward of actually making it yourself. And I guess that gives you ultimate control over the QC, the quality of it, and, and where it's all being, how it's being made. Yeah, the only problem with it as well is our own thing. You, you can become quite diverse. You do get, tend to get distracted and set off down another route, making something else. Mm-hmm. Hence, you get into things like the track bike and all the rest of it, and actually making a complete bike. But... So five years ago, we always fancied doing a bike. You know, we were using lots of other people's bikes. It's a bit like the lights when we mm-hmm. made the lights. We only made lights because we wanted to use them. And in a way, we're all going out. It's 40 or 50 is going out from our bike. We're riding other people's bikes. And rather than buy, I thought it would be nice to make our own frame. And that's what got us into composites. So we started off with a seat post just to learn how to do it. And then we built up over five or six years to now being able to do the, the bikes. But also, that enabled us to do the track bikes. We've done the HB 160 and then the 130 and the track bike. But this year we actually exhibited at the Advanced Engineering and Composite Show. Okay. And we had many, many big companies, McLaren, Red Bull, British Aerospace, all, all coming up and complimenting our, how advanced we are in the composites. D- despite it being a relatively new thing? Yeah, it's because we could do the engineering, we can make our own moulds. So we actually, it's not just about using the material, it's actually the machine that makes the mould is only 10 metres away from where they actually lay in the prototype. So it's actually totally unheard of in the composites world to have engineering, actual metal engineering, next to the composites engineering. Okay, so I mean, hopes obviously, I think we'll come back to the HP-130 in development a bit, because it is obviously a very interesting bike and, and the work with Lotus. But going back to sort of the, the early sort of history, you, you said you that you both come from a, a motor trials background, you had the, the cable disc, was it a cable disc brake on the motorbike or was it hydraulic at that point? It was always hydraulic on the motorbike okay. and then we made the cable ones make it simpler and then we moved on to the hydraulic one later. Okay, so with the hydraulics, it started, was it a C2, a closed system, which 
different to what we're running now? Yeah, it's to get retraction on the pads to pull, but, but actually, thinking about it, if you control the heat, the rollback market could do with the float system again now because people are obsessed with not getting it rubbing. So that's the thing. That was the thing we always had before. We had a closed system. You could actually set the, the pad position, not just rely on the seals to pull it back, natural pullback. You actually could adjust the pullback because it was springs, but you've got heat management and that can be a real problem. So remember the C2, they used to race downhill on the C2. Mm. So that's how it all started. And then we made a, an open system after that. Okay, so an open system is one which effectively allows the hydraulic fluid to expand a little bit through heat. Is that right with the bladder? Have I got that right? Or? Yeah, when you release the lever, it allows the fluid to run back up. If you hold the lever closed, so if you're pulling the brake and it heats up, it does pump the lever out. So any brake with a car brake, if you actually hold the brake pedal down all mm -hmm. the time, it'll gradually bring, as the heat comes up, it'll bring it. But once you release it, it allows that surface fluid to go up into the master cylinder, mm -hmm. and then you press it again, it's adjusted itself because it adjusts itself to actually for pad wear. So as the pads wear, it adjusts itself. Okay, so yeah, so that's why, and that's why we're running the open systems most, because it's the most efficient, well, most uh, reliable for the various heat builds up. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so with the, we talk about the hubs a little bit then. The hub is obviously probably best known for the brakes and the hubs. Is there, what, what sort of the challenges then with, with developing, you know, your hubs? You, you, you built the first ones, I remember right, reading, so you could fit the, the disc brake caliper, uh, the rotors to. Yeah, that's what we did. We, we did a spline, I don't even remember it. We yeah. did an actual splice. We were the first people to do a spline. It was called the cycloid spline, and it was pinched from an RB211 engine. It's the, the spline on the end of the engine, which is much bigger, because that's a multi-shaft engine. And so we took the cycloid spline off that and put it onto a hub. And that's how that worked. And then much, much later, I think Shimano did a spline and they claimed for the first... Anyway, we did it a long time ago. And then we went six bolt. The six bolt standard came out. But we had... Uh, I don't even remember the fat so That was one of those mm -hmm. on, on bolts. And then... So the, the big one, that was on... You know, so all, all sorts of different mounts we've had over the years. It's hard to remember them all, actually. Yeah. So 30 years of making these. There's a five bolt, I think. That's yeah, there was a five bolt, yeah. That's it. But that leads to the fact that at one point we were offered discs from China for that one dollar fiat. It was ridiculous, but we said we didn't want to do that. Instead, we set up, we bought a laser cutter, bought a heat treatment set up and a disc grinder. And once we committed to that, it was probably 750,000, something like that, a big commitment at the time. But since then, we've, we've do sort of 60,000 discs a year through that process. And we've moved on three lasers later, two or three heat treatment systems later, we've got two disc grinders. So once you've got the capacity to do things, that's the story basically right through the factory. If you invest in the initial capacity to do it, you can improve that, all the processes, all the way through, and you actually have that capacity. And how much does it really cost? Once you've paid for that in three or four years, you can then compete, because we are competing with China, Malaysia, Taiwan, that sort of thing. You know, Everybody else is looking for the cheapest cost base, They're bringing prices down, looking for cheap labour. Well, we don't do that. We're trying to automate and use the best processes we can. And, but as I say, once you actually own the equipment and you've paid for it, how much does it really cost? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how long does your average machine last then? Because, as you say, if it's compared itself back in a couple of years, presumably after that it will keep on going and going. Yeah, we have some uh, five-axis mirrors. The oldest one now is about 15 years old, and it's still... We buy high-quality machines, Matsuras. They're Japanese, like you don't buy a Japanese camera, the real high-quality machines. We buy those machines. And we buy Swiss machines as one of our turning machines. But they do last a long time. So you can divide... If you divide the price up by those many years, mm -hmm. 
and actually working out, it, you can actually compete with Asia. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with stuff being made in Asia. It's probably fine. But someone's, you know, we, we enjoy making it here. And it's, like I say, with great pride that we do it. But it's a different method of accounting, as it were. If you actually worked it out, you would never buy the machine, you know, half a million pound machine spread over. If you say you've got to pay for it very short, space time, you'd be charging 150, 200 pound an hour. They wouldn't turn the machine on. But we say, oh, you can run it for 10 years, try and run it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, make components. And how, as again, how much it really cost if you're working out at the end of the year, we sort of seem to manage to make money that's mm-hmm. where it counts as a small company I mean there's 170 people now so okay. it's not that small we've grown over the years and it, we've never touch wood made a loss mm-hmm. always just made you know reasonable amount of profit but it's not a fortune we invest a lot in new equipment as in the composites department probably invested over a million pounds just in the department for the equipment to do the composites but that's what we've always done if you invest in the kit then you can actually it opens up the opportunity to do other projects if you're working out commercially, it might be a bit of a crazy project. If you actually work things out, you never set off to make something. And that's what happens with big companies. They tend not to set off into doing, you know, making a complete mine like the HP 160. But we're able to do that because we've got the equipment to do it. Do you think that's also a function of um, your size and maybe, you say, you know, big companies have to be fairly risk-averse, I'd have thought, because um, if you know, products don't quite go right. Do you think the size and the flexibility that you have and, and with you still you know, running the company gives you the ability to take those risks? Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, they all talk about this rider own, but they ride their own, then they just go to China and get something made, which is it's not, it's not that, you know, nothing wrong with it. Mm. But my thing is just get on and make it yourself, have a go yourself and try and do it and then expand and that's the way we've done it it's just by doing it ourselves being an engineer and that's so we 50% of it we absolutely love cycling and 50% we love engineering so it's the combination of the two things it ends up that we end up in these situations making interesting things different things we don't necessarily fully commercialise everything we do if you were much more money orientated you would absolutely as they call it squeeze the pips out of people we tend not to do that we like to look after the people that work here we enjoy what we do and try to get good service. If someone was upset with the whole product, I'm devastated. It's a personal slight to me. And I take it personally. If yeah. I see a, you know, no offence to journalists, honestly. You see a bad review, it's quite upsetting, really, because we still have passion for what we do. Mm-hmm. And it's the people who work it that actually make that. It's not just some water in Malaysia, Taiwan, or India. Yeah. It's not something I just knock it in. The people here, actually take great pride in what they do and love the brand and love the product they make. Mm-hmm. Can, we, can we talk about the people who, who work in the factory then? I mean, we're in Barnoldswick in uh, Lancashire. You know, it's in, it's in the north. It's quite an industrial sort of area. There's people who have been here sort of from the beginning, from where I understand, but also, you know, a lot of other people coming in. Can you, I don't know, just talk about who works here and, and how they get here and things? Yeah, as we've got bigger and bigger, it's attractive from further afield and more skills you know, you know from engineers we've now got linguists we've got graphic designers we've got you know designers graduates all that sort of thing so a lot of very very broad field of work that we actually do here that's the thing with, with it distributing our own product we've always distributed deals ourselves and things like that so it, it is a very varied workforce but we try to keep it as a team with very very low turnover of staff mm-hmm. And everybody's, everybody is on our test team, research and development. Everybody's testing bikes all the time. So we have something like a million, a million and a half pounds worth of actual bikes that people ride. 
and that's what we do. Everybody just uses all the kit all the time. And, you know, the general ride once a month, we all go out for a ride, and it's probably 30, 40 people out on a Sunday. And then the Christmas ride, we get up to 100 people, go out on the Christmas ride, go for a meal afterwards. It's a great team, and everybody mm-hmm. loves That's what I say, they take great pride, and it's, you know, it's great. When something works well, and they get, you know, good reviews and everything, it's really enjoyable and a great to be part of it. I mean, we spent the morning walking around the factory looking at the different bits and pieces and, and chatting to, you know, people on the, on the machines and you certainly get the impression that it's, you know, it has that sort of family-run sort of feel and everyone, you know, it's, it's quite a community sort of feel to the place, which, you know, despite the fact that it's sort of clearly grown from very small beginnings to, let's say, 170 people, I guess, to keep that um, focus on, on the staff has been really important. It's really tricky because there's a, an engineering a study and they found out that most companies are best up to 100 people. And once you get over 100, it gets difficult. But you've just got to keep everybody involved. It's not perfect. I'll never pretend it's perfect. We try our best with everybody. But one of the things we have done, and myself and Sam when we started, every single job they're doing, we've done. It, it was on the machines, programming the machines, doing the anodizing, doing the laser marking doing the competition, doing the sales on the phones, doing the warranty, and all the rest. So I know it feels going right through, so 30-odd years of it we've all... Mm. So that's the thing about it. And the environment downstairs, we do... So by default, we are very environmental, but not because of, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. It's the environmental thing. We've always done that because we worked in that environment. So we want... There's, you know, clean air and not polluting and actually recycling things. That's what we've always done. It's an efficient way of running an engineering company. So by default and design, we have, we have naturally ended up that way. So it does wind up when people do these false ones, you know, Tesco's doing something, and nothing wrong with it. Yeah. It's a bit false sort of thing, but yeah. ours is just a natural process that you actually end up doing. You, you recycle scrap metal because you get money for it, so that's a natural <laughs> way to do it. You, you don't want to not have the proper extraction and things on, on machine because that, we're down there I'm working I've been in those areas so I don't want it to be unclean it's not we have a lot of people well I would say five or six of our engineers have had uh, skin problems at other engineering companies and they come here because we buy the most expensive high quality coolant it's a trivial thing mm-hmm. but they don't get problems with the skin when they're working on the machines because we buy the better quality rather than cutting corners mm-hmm. and we said there's no point in cutting corners you buy the best equipment and same thing that all leads to things like the programming and the design systems. So when people come in, they get the best 3D design packages and they get the best machines. We've always worked on that money no object. Mm-hmm. And rather than taking money out of the business, I'm not saying I'm, you know, I do very well out of it, thank you very much. Yeah. But who needs a plane? Who needs a massive boat? You know, do you need these things? I'd rather do this. And I have a bit of a thing about this keeping hold of the company rather than selling it. If you look at every single company in the cycling industry mm-hmm. they just build it up to sell it on yeah and it's just continuous and then what did they call it the venture capitalist holiday home didn't they when they were buying these companies and destroying them and it saddles a company with debt so if someone buys something at 5 million 10 million 50 million 100 million that company always has that debt sat on top of it they've got to pay that interest so that's when you say about getting involved with so i have an actual interest in business i have friends yeah. who do that sort of thing but it's not something I would want to saddle her with. It's my baby sort mm-hmm. of thing, and I wouldn't want to saddle. So we don't have to make a fortune. Mm-hmm. We can invest a lot. We're not paying a bank off. We're not paying. We've never had any bank loans. 
So no bank loans. No bank loans. There's no debt. There's never been any debt in 30 odd years. We've never any debt. We have a little bit of asset finance on machines. You just buy, like you buy a car and asset yeah. finance. You pay it off after three years. But actually, we're heading to the point of having none of that either. So it gives you the freedom to do whatever. We own the building. We own the machines. We own all the bikes. We own the kit. So it gives you great flexibility mm-hmm. rather than actually taking lots of money out of the business. We don't need to do that. Okay, so this flexibility, this owning of it, and this has led to a fairly extensive now range of products. And again, you know, we'll talk about the bikes in a little bit, but you started off with brakes, uh, then went to hubs, hydraulic brakes. And now, you know, you can almost deck out a full bike with Hope products should you wish to. Like, in terms of coming up with new products um, and new sort of little bits and pieces that you're making, Who's behind all that? Are you still very much involved in the day-to-day engineering, or how does that all work? Yeah, very much involved and interested. I mean, but now we've got lots of people that are suggesting things. I mean, you can have a go at anything. Anybody can talk about things, but it's actually doing it. And then mm-hmm. the difficult part is actually designing something and then bringing it to market. You come up with an idea. We get ideas thrown at us all over the place, but it's easy to say, but it's another thing actually making a commercial mm-hmm working version of something that's a much more and people when, when they do start working at designers you need to sketch something up then you've got to engineer it and you've got to test it and we're, we're getting better and better at it and we mm-hmm. have some great test facilities now we are doing a lot of work on testing that's become much more efficient than it used to be but uh, it's not as easy as it looks and you need the equipment you need mm-hmm. to invest in the equipment to be able to do that so there are We've probably got 10 designers now making new products and designing things, you know, five of the composites, five of the metal. Mm-hmm. So it keeps life interesting. So it's fair to assume then that we're going to keep seeing new bits and pieces and refined bits and pieces coming from you guys? Yeah, we do try to keep reasonably consistent on things to look after the customer. We don't want to change things too much, so knock people's things out of there. This sort of change and updating every year, well, it was pretty good before. So unless you can actually make... a a useful engineering modification that makes it better, keep it the same. You know, that's the problem with these bigger companies. They talk, what's the new year range? What's mm-hmm. the new range this year? What's the new range? And you've got... And also, and they also have ranges of products that aren't that much different. Yeah. They just make it a little, you know... No offence to any that's what big companies do, isn't it? And they have mm-hmm. different price points. And actually, they're working the cheap ones, the same as they're working the expensive ones. They just call it a different name, and it... Different colour. Yeah, different colour, and it becomes expensive. But... Uh, so we, we do, you know, we are moving on all the time. It's probably one of our faults that we actually have such a wide range of products and we should never have gone into making bikes. Should we? It's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, Shimano or SRAM would never make bikes. That is madness. Why would they do that? So what the hell have we done that for? But it's what we do. So it's, we just want somebody to ride, don't we? And it's, it's more fun when you're all out on your own bike. Yeah. Uh, I was impressed in the little stock room that there's shelves full of spare parts for li- literally everything and, and, and Doddy who's been showing us around and not Doddy from GMBN but <laughs> Hope's Doddy uh, was saying that you know you can literally still get seal kits for the C2 brake. I mean, this um, almost feels obsession of making sure that everyone is properly looked after and, and everything's properly engineered is it feels semi-unique would you say? Yeah we do try our best that's what you want to do I mean, anybody does that if you buy something you want to be able to service it and we've always done that design things so they can be serviced. Mm. We wouldn't seal things up so they can't be serviced. That's what a lot of people do. And that, again, you're back to the environment. You can actually keep ours going for years and years mm. because they do last a long time, but that's just because that's what we want. 
and we don't want to have to mess around with it. And when we sell something, we don't want any hassle. So the guy on the phones is a friend, you know, we have a, we're going to the room and have a brew with him. And if he's on the phone, we get a lot of stick because some product's not quite up to it. We all feel it. He gets upset. Everybody else gets upset. If that's the army, it's, it's instant. It's not that it's made in some far, far away country and they don't really. It actually is the first news machining thing. It's having a cup of tea outside with the guy that actually is on the phone to people. So, you know, it's a, it makes a massive difference, does that? It, you respond very, very quickly. It, in theory, it could be, people say it's a lot of hassle, but it, it isn't really. It keeps it true. Mm-hmm. It keeps it true. Yeah, you can't just knock something out cheap and hope for the best. If they get complaints back, it comes right to source. Everybody feels it. Yeah, because you're such an intertwined company and everyone's got a part in every single thing. Yeah, and if somebody's going to pack up, they're, they're riding it. And, you know, they can ride it that night, they're going out riding. If it was a brake that didn't quite work, work out, a pad that didn't quite work, or a light that went out or something like that, the guy who designed the lights gets a lot of stick with it after. That's how it works. So you don't, it's just a natural way. It's, a, it's almost like a natural selection. It makes sure everything's right, doesn't it? Because the people you're working with are using your equipment. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's talk bikes because... That's sort of why I'm, you know, why we're in here today. We're picking up an HB130. Um, it's going to be a long-term test bike for MBUK, which is, you know, super exciting. Um, the HB160 came out um, a year or two ago, and it was perhaps not what we expected to see. Um, so, can you sort of talk us through why, you know, what, why bring out the HB160, um, and how we sort of morphed now to having the HB130? The HB 160 took a long time. That was when we first started to composites. We'd done seat bows, we started on the bars, and it was our first attempt at the bike. And it, it also, so when the geometry was started on that, and the actual drawings, the first models were made, it was up to date, and it was, sort of, mm-hmm. it was out to date before it came out, in a way. Yeah. So now we've been much, much faster at producing the 130. Mm-hmm. The geometry's more up to date. And I think the geometry's settled a little bit, and it we've got slacker, and it's a, it sort of fits in the 29er as well. It all works, and it's... It's sort of settled down a little bit, much faster at it, and the designs have settled down a little bit. So it's it's a much better proposition, much better bike for, for UK riding as well. And we were a little bit on the 160, we're a bit overbiked. It tended to be we were going over to Whistler, we were going to the Alps, and not everybody does that kind of riding. So it was a bit over the top, whereas 130 fits and 29 holes better. It, it fits better with the UK market. Mm-hmm. And how long has it taken then to come up with the, the 130? I would say it's only about six months to get the first ones out. So when you start with the design, the first drawings, I mean, yeah, we can do, if we do a size change now, we haven't done a small in this yet. And if we decide to do a small, it's probably four weeks to get them all done. Six weeks, we've got something out, and we're riding something in six weeks. So probably six months from concept to first bikes out there. Whereas the 160 was probably four years. <laughs> our first composites and doing the first ones, and we're much, much better at it now. I mean, the analysis we've got on the stress analysis and the loading on the bike is much, much better. We've got a much better testing system. Okay, so six months is an incredible amount of time to get a bike out from, from concept to, to production. Does this mean that there's potential for... Um, other stuff down the line that you'll be able to turn around fairly quickly and be quite reactive with. Yeah, because we can't make the moulds so quickly. It just when you tend to do it, you've got four or five moulds to do. If you go as far as XL, X, XS, you, you can have, you know. But if you're doing just a one, 
So, you know, we've got Adam Brayton there riding the down about, perhaps we should have a go at that and make a couple of those. We might just do one to suit Adam, just mm-hmm. his side. You know, there's opportunities. We're looking at things like that. Mm-hmm. We got dragged into this track bike, which is sort of taking a bit of time, but we're trying to deliver at least about five or six 130s a week. That's mm-hmm. what the production is at the moment. So we are upping that a little bit. Okay, so briefly the process um, for, for you guys to build a bike is, you know, unlike, I guess, a lot of other bike companies, you have the facilities in, in-house to make your own moulds, which I guess is, is that relatively unique? I mean, it, it seems that everything is so close together, so interconnected that it gives you this ability to do that. How, how do you build a bike? Yeah, well, that's it. We, we can come up with the concept, the idea to get the design done, and then we can actually machine the mould. And now we've got better and better at producing the moulds as well. We know exactly how to draw the moulds up, so we've got the 3D design drawn up, and we can produce it. And Actually, the first bike on the 130 out of the mall, the first frame, was usable. So it was actually rideable. And then we, we work on the layups and the way it's done. Mm-hmm. And so we are very, very adaptable. We could change things quite dramatically, mm-hmm. very quickly. Okay. So let's, let's quickly talk track bikes then. This, again, was came a little bit out of the blue. Um, it was only announced a couple of weeks ago now. Um, pictures went around the internet very, very quick because it's a stunning-looking bike. It's very different to any other track bike out there um, and obviously having you know the lotus name is on there uh, they've got clear sort of history with track riding with barcelona 92 am i right in remembering my timing on the you know when they, when they, when Bournemouth was riding you know there's a lot of history or intertwined and then you've come out with this space age looking track bike it's pretty cool yeah that's that's the thing we it's because it, so it's all built up over the last 30 years as a result of the ability to do these things that's what's happened so we actually it was probably 18 months two years ago and it's just probably actually two and a half years ago maybe more it's coincidences of meeting different people British Cycling came in to talk about uh, Anilas bike mountain bike mm-hmm. and they just wanted like because you know Paul Alden raced so well his bike's so light he's tricked it up all the time so they wanted to, Eva Richards as well, they were looking at these bikes if they could do something special for their bikes, for the World Cups and then qualifying for the Olympics and all that stuff, like two and a half years ago, maybe three years ago. And, but they bought, brought Tony Penelin, which is a technical director, consultant for British Cycling. And so a group of them came in and then as he walked around the workshop, we showed him around, he sort of said, oh, this fits with an idea I've been having. So it, it suddenly got this idea going on. And at the time, my son was going, applying to Cambridge University. Tony's a professor at Cambridge. So anyway, I said, well, just sit in there and talk to him. See if it, you know, like interviews with now for me. I talk him into going and say, anyway, so Tony sat down within 20 minutes. It wasn't a problem. And then sort of six months later, Tony sent me a message saying, oh, I see Will got here, Cambridge. When you drop him off, do you want to come for a coffee? And so I met him. It's a coffee shop called Hot Numbers. And... So I dropped Will off at uni and went down to the coffee shop to meet Tony. Uh, as I've said in another interview, it turned out to be the most expensive cup of coffee I've ever had. <laughs> he had this idea, and they'd been working on it for about seven years, Tony had come inside it, because he used to own Jaguar Formula One, and then he went working for Benny Eccleston. He understands about working around the rules, and that's his speciality. So Sport England and Tony had come up with this idea seven years ago, straight after two Olympics ago, and they'd worked on it and they wanted to go further. So he said, I've got this idea for a plan B. 
responsible for and all the rest of it, but we'll work on plan B. Could you make us one bike? Mm-hmm. So as you say, we're very adaptable. Love a good one. Why not just make one of these bikes? It sounds interesting. Because I've always had a bit of fascination with track. You know, we were talking about building a velodrome and everything. Mm-hmm. That's my, I still want to do that. So I've got plans for that. Good. But I just need a lot of money for that. That's what I probably should charge more. Anyway, that's another story. We're not bothered with that. But uh, so we started it. This one bike, the idea was to make this one bike, sent us the drawings, revolutionary, fantastic idea. And they'd done lots of work of it. And you'd be pleased to know that that's your lottery ticket money <laughs> and your tax money that British Cycling get, Sport England get, and they're working. Because I know there's a lot of complaints about where the money goes to and everything, but when Britain do well in any athlete, athletics or swimming or cycling, it's great, it does lift the nation. There is a mm-hmm. sort of a weird, it's an Olympic thing isn't it how it changes the mentality yeah so it, you sort of when you think about it it is worth it and they put millions of into wind tunnel testing of this design so they'd actually done all the work so the aerodynamics and the design was all done okay. so we got those given to us and started work on the frame and we were going to do the forks and things like that, but we we're just so busy with everything else and, we, and then tony came he said oh lotus have run it up and they would like to get involved with the project and i said well the designs there, they've got the fork, just send them the forks and the bars. We're not going to do it. We haven't got time. It's great to split the project in half. We'll make the frames, wheels, and they can do the forks and handlebars. So that, that's how that happened. And then Lotus got on board. And they're owned by Gila, who owned Volvo. Okay. The tax so they were looking for a relaunch. They just made the supercar. So they were looking for a relaunch. And it suited them. So they put their logo on the fork. And they've had the forks made. They don't think they, they just had that made. So we haven't had anything to do with the fork. We just got that delivered to us and it goes on the bike mm-hmm. so that's how that's unfolded but what happened was there was a rule change during the process of plan B okay. making one and the UCI came out with this regulation that things have got to be commercially available but obviously the UKSI bikes they used in Barcelona and London they only made a few of them no, no, no more ever made the Cervelos were specially made by Lentz, a UK company the Formula 1 company so they were not, they're not made. So overnight, all the British cycling bikes became illegal. So they actually are illegal. They shouldn't be riding them now. Right. So they, it's a big debate about whether they'll allow them to ride them. So they had to deal with it. So, so plan B became plan A. So from making one bike, it's making about 30 or 40 bikes. Can you make the full team bikes? You're like, oh, right. So it all built up. So we actually, by accident, ended up, and just by coincidence, because meeting him in the coffee shop and doing this, and it's built up as we've gone on. That's how it's built up. So we've committed more and more to it. And uh, But you'll be pleased to know we're paying for all that. It's not taxpayer or the whole of the UK bikes, all the models. But uh, one of the funny things about it was that when the UK SI bike was made, which they paid for, mm-hmm. British Cycling and UK Sport paid for, they had two models and then they altered the size a little bit by the headstock. That's all they did. But now we're making it because we can make one. They make there's eight different sizes of the new bike, so it's quite a thing. So we've got eight molds, eight variations of molds, five molds with different halves that go onto them to make different bikes. So it's quite a variety of bikes we can produce out of those molds. But uh, so that's built up now. It's become plan A and it's become critical. And everybody here now it's been released to the public. Everybody realises how important it's that Olympic effect. Mm-hmm. And if they do use these in the Olympics, it's fantastic internet. We get an international recognition. Mm-hmm. And as I said, we, we've actually exhibited at the composite show at the time we launched that. And our 
profile as an engineering company, as a technology company, has been lifted massively. And people are coming to us now asking us if we can produce moulds for them. Not because people can't do that. They tend to do fiberglass or carbon moulds rather than aluminium moulds. So we can actually make, produce moulds a lot faster and cheaper and much more efficient than most other companies. So that's, I guess, recognising that really you're an engineering company as much as you are a bicycle component and company. Yeah, that's the thing. That's what I was saying to you before about the engineer. That's what we're engineers and we absolutely love doing that. The thing about the moulds is when I was at Rolls Royce, if you've seen the fan blade on the front of the jet engine, those fan blades are produced by moulds at Van Oswick. And that's what I used to produce in the tour room. We used to make fan blade moulds, which were out of incredibly hard materials which are far harder to work with than the aluminium we make these bike moulds out of but it's dead easy so it's, it's actually much easier making bike moulds than making aerospace moulds Okay so maybe another little revenue stream then making moulds for other people do you, do you think that having um, you know over the years Hope has had a number of products for you know road bikes talking you know, about displays there's the the conversion so you had a cable pulling into a hydraulic reservoir to hydraulic disc brakes on road bikes years ago now you know do you think that you're gonna you have a focus on mountain bike now do you think there might be a swing towards road bikes coming at all or well we do the cyclocross we've always been involved here with portal racing furs and lots of other jerry and the three peaks and everything that's why we did that remote reservoir mm-hmm. that's why we put the discs on that for cross racing and so i think we're more likely to do it's all blending into one and what it is most people here we're virtually every we're cyclists through and through and when you're cyclists you have you don't just have one bike, do you? You have seven bikes, don't you? You have every kind of thing. And you ride mountain bikes in winter, you ride road bikes, and you go in the gravel, and now we've started doing the cross. So you started off just using the cyclist bikes for driving the road, and then you do and then you got uh, comes a gravel bike mm. and I mean the Americans think of new names for it. We just do it, don't we? That's what we do, and they just think of a name for it. Yeah. So we oh we're doing that for ages. Oh that's gravel. Oh I thought I was riding my cross bike, yeah. So it just it's, it's weird like this, so you actually build up naturally, and it's events that create these opportunities, but if you have the equipment and the knowledge, it opens doors for you, doesn't it, and you can actually do more, and keep an open mind, and don't ever add up the numbers, if you, keep, if you, you will never set off doing something if you try and justify it by talking numbers, because it just wouldn't work out, it's... This track bike thing, it's, it's more pride and enjoyment. And people here, are, are, now they know they're involved with the Olympics, it's the pride they have in doing that. It's absolutely, it's priceless. That's the thing. If you work that out, if, okay, we might have a bad year because we put so much effort into that, but in 10 years' time, we could say we had a go. And, and they asked us to do it. And if we could have, if we'd have said no, they would never ask us again. So they asked us, and we said, well, why not? Let's have a go. And that's what we've done. And that's, you know, that's what we started off years and years ago. That's what, why would you put a disc brake on a bike? You know, oh, let's have a go up to it. You sort of forget that we actually were, with motorcycle, we're the first people with disc brakes on bikes. So Shimano, Sram, they all do it now, they all do those things and claims. But we did it years and years ago, you know, that spline, all, all sorts of different things we've done. And then what they'll do, you'll see all these patterns come out, they, you know, Shimano, it was done ages ago, you know, all these. Things like the silly pants and narrow white. It was on a muck spreader in 1900, <laughs> things like that. When you look back, lots and lots, they've all been done before. So it's great to be involved in some innovative parts. And that's what we've gone with this track back. It's really innovative. Within the rules, it's all about within the rules. Mm. And then commercially available. So we're able to sell this product as well, which will be interesting to see how that sells. So it's, it sounds like, it, you know, the engineering challenge is as interesting and important as anything else, really. No, without a doubt, that's what it's about, and that's what's giving people the pride, because 
And we've got people in the factory now that don't work on composites that want to come up and lay up and actually get involved in the Olympic track back. When I first took it on, there was just me sort of interested and then there, as I worked my R&D manager with interest, and then we've suddenly got more and more people on board and that's how we do it. Now it's been launched to the press. Everybody is interested and they've realised the benefit of doing such a thing. Yeah. yeah. We could. I think, um, as I said earlier, I wanted to talk about um, politics. Um, at the moment in the UK, you know, we're recording this on was it, the 18th of December, so uh, of November. So we've not had the uh, 2019 December election. We've not had Brexit. Um, it must be an interesting time to be a small to medium-sized UK manufacturer of high-end products that are distributed worldwide. What? How are you sort of? Um, what are your thoughts on the situation? Do you, is it? difficult or is it just is that blown up in the media is it, is it business as usual like what's what's going on at the moment well what it is, it's going to be years and years and years we had recessions that we had all the different recessions or so and business all that but small to medium sized business we just have to carry on doing business don't we we adapt and adjust accordingly and it's uncertainty doesn't help matters so one way or the other I don't, I don't mind which way they go just make a decision and get it done and that's sort of what we've done in business we always make a decision stick to it and get mm -hmm. stuck in and do it and they're not doing that. They're indecisive, mm -hmm. and that's one of the problems we've had. So we, you know, we've carried on with this project. We've, we've had, we had a dip in sales. In the UK, sales exports great, okay. but then we have a dip because the exchange rates mm -hmm. makes that better. But the UK can sell that dip in confidence towards the first Brexit that didn't happen. Was it end of March, wasn't it? Yeah. And then I think we had a record April. And then it's it's gradually gone down again to the mm -hmm. end of October when it was supposed to happen. And then it's jumping up again. Everything's back to normal. And it, it does affect people and it affects the way business decisions. Mm -hmm. So all the businesses, it affects them. So it's a general knock-on effect. And whichever way you're going to go, just get it done. And then we can get on with work. And, mm -hmm. and like I said, we just have to carry on doing business. Luckily, like I said, we export probably 60% of our product now. So we're a good exporter. So that's all worked out well, and we are fairly solid. And because we have no debt, mm -hmm. we don't really have massive problems that way. You don't necessarily need to have to make a fortune if you're not paying a massive debt off. So if you have debt to pay, we don't answer to anybody. That's the mm -hmm. thing. And that's, I think, we... Uh, it would be... We would maybe a little bit more efficient. If we did have debt, we'd be more efficient. We'd be answering to people. But as it is, we don't have to answer to anybody. So we are OK. Okay, so it sounds like if you know if it was a publicly listed company, you know your your lack of debt, your ability to react fairly quickly would make you a fairly safe investment at this time. You know. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, yeah. But they, most companies have been bought and sold three or four times over, haven't they? I mean, you, you find out that that's what they do. I mean, you know, in the cycle, not to mention anybody in particular, but the cycle industry, yeah, it's forever headlines. Especially, it, it's just people playing, it, isn't it? They're just buying and selling it. They're not really that enthusiastic. As soon as they get the suits getting old, it can destroy everything, can't it? Because it's, it burns a company with debt. And that's, that's the thing, when you've got the debt to pay off. If we made zero on them, as long as we paid all the wages, mm -hmm. everything we five is fine, aren't they? And then you, you get stuck in and make some money the following month. It's all right. It's, so you can actually control it better. But if you've got a great big debt hanging over you, that's what I was saying about one of my things with my new factory in Velodrome on the top of it. Mm -hmm. a great, you know, I've got all these ideas. We've got a six-acre six site ready to go. But it's... It's four or five million pounds that we need to do that. So I'm saving up when yeah. I've got the money. It's crazy because other people would just get borrow it or get an outside investor. But the outside investor would influence you. If you borrow it, you'd be beholden to them. And people say, oh, why don't you get sporting and give you money to pay? But then you have to work to their rules. 
and we don't need it to anybody's rules. We just want to work to our own thing. And you know, worst case scenario, I'd be riding around the track on my own. It'd be great fun. At least we'd own it. Absolutely. I love going on track like this. So we just quickly wrap up then with um, what do you think uh, hope going forward? Um, we'll, we'll not bother with, with the politics. I think that's very fairly covered off. Where do you see hope in, in, in five years? What's, what's the master plan? We haven't got one. And that's what we would never have set off. I mean, who'd have thought it when we started making the 160? In three years, you're going to be making a track bike. What the hell? Who the hell would have thought that? And then it's, it's just, we've absolutely no idea which direction we're going. We just take opportunities as they come up and try to do that and just keep it straight. And, then, and keep people busy. You know, we're employing 170 people. It's their wage, their mortgages, their families. So you, you are, you know, we need sales. So we will do things to encourage sales. I mean, but we're not over-commercial. We don't have to be overly commercial. Mm-hmm. But uh, and look after your customers as well. So we try, do try and do that and keep it interesting for them. What's Hope doing now? What's happening? And it just, things come forward to us and we take those opportunities and we'll keep going. Well, it sounds like a, a rich history yet to come. That's, that's great. But um, thank you very much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. It's been really interesting. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for that. Thank you. Cool. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.